Welcome to episode 20 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Welcome to episode 20. My name is Jay Jacobson. Joining me is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are you? Doing an awesome day. It's a great day. What What is new in your world? Uh, preparation for the 2016 DBIR. Get out already. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will put a call out there. If you want to be famous and get your data in the DBIR, get a hold of me now because we're crank, we're, we're going to start cranking that thing. Awesome. Looking forward to it and looking forward to hearing the inside scoop. And and, and you're all bit sighty. Yes, I am all bit sighty. I am having a ball. Um, and I, I hope uh, within the next month or two to actually get some cool stuff going. Uh, certainly going to talk about some of the work I'm doing at Siricon. Um Are you going to make it to Siricon, Bob? You know, Ver, I, I haven't actually had a chance to tell you, Allie, or the gang this yet, but Verizon scheduled me at an event. That is horrible. It it is it is horrible because like it's it, it, that that the event ends in Boston the day before Siricon starts, and I will literally be killed if I even suggest I'm going to go to the Siricon. So, well, we can talk about this later. Yeah. Um. So we have a, a very special guest. We had a great interview with a, a really uh, great person, and it was really fun to talk to him. And as a testament to that, the what we're actually sharing with you on the podcast is a slice of the actual full interview and the discussion that we had. Um, we, we covered a lot of topics and a lot of things. And so the, the guest on this podcast is Ben Edwards. And he is a just finishing up his PhD at uh, the University of New Mexico, where he works in Stephanie Forrest Adaptive Systems Lab. And uh, we'll, we'll hear her name come up uh, throughout the interview. But he he did a, a couple of, he's done a r- bunch of really great papers, almost exclusively around security. And the one that of course caught our attention was the hype and heavy tales, a closer look at data breaches, which won the best paper at Weiss, the workshop for Ec- economics of information security uh, in 2015. And so uh, it's a really great paper. Uh, and one of the things that I really like about Ben is that very, very focused on statistics and modeling and, and things like that. So without further ado, uh, we're going to bring on Ben. And of course, the first question that we ask him is, how did he end up where he is? I'm a PhD student at the University of New Mexico and finishing up the last few months of my dissertation work on modeling different types of global cybersecurity interventions. So I did my undergraduate at the South Dakota School of Mines and applied math and computer engineering. And I actually wasn't terribly interested in security right after I graduated. Um, I was interested in studying social networks. Um, I came to the University of New Mexico to do some work in sociology, and I studied criminology, and I did some statistics for the New Mexico Institute for Social Research. And then my advisor, Stephanie Forrest, kind of recruited me uh, to start doing some graduate work. Um, And I was lucky enough to get involved in a project uh, modeling internet growth and incorporating the spread of malware into some of those growth models. Um, And we started looking at things like how ISPs might play a role in filtering malicious traffic uh, in a very abstract way. Um, with some colleagues at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And so as I got more interested in a lot of these kind of global cybersecurity phenomenon, 
I, I kind of started asking applied math style questions like why not just make a statistical model or what's wrong with an agent-based model or can we do this as a differential equation? And it occurred to me that a lot of the kind of modeling and stats um, that I was used to coming out of applied math and even sociology a little bit wasn't very widely applied in security. Um, and I thought, you know, there's there's a, a niche that kind of needs to be exploited. So I, that's, how I, that's how I really got in the security domain. So in, in a lot of ways, I'm an outsider. So, so wait, who was your advisor again? Stephanie Forrest. So, and she actually works for the University of New Mexico. She does. So she, so I, I can actually specify my donation specifically to the department that she's in for saving us from yet another Twitter graph analysis. You could, you could. Because yes. I, because I, I think I have to do that because she actually saved the planet from one more person using Python to analyze <laughs> tweets. And actually has some brilliant person, which is you, doing and applying his brain power to security. This is, like, totally amazing. This never happens. I am actually genuinely thankful. For it. It's amusing, but I'm also genuinely thankful for this because I would, I would much rather have you doing this work, which is going to be really useful and helpful, than whatever gosh awful thing you were thinking of doing before. So, Stephanie, you Stephanie you I officially love you right now. <laughs> you don't want to track memes as they, they fly across the Twitterverse and make I nice D3 visualizations? Not, 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 not so much. <laughs> Okay. So, Ben, though, I mean, I went and looked at your list of publications and things you've worked on, and you've actually got a pretty long list of things on security now that you've published on. What's really different about these types of papers is it seems like there's a level of passion there, that there's, uh, you know, like you, you care more than you, you know, you care about actually making a difference and showing something interesting than about sounding smart. And, and there's a, certainly an element of sounding smart in there too, but, you know, it's academia. But, um, but there, there's a certain level of care. And so what really grabbed you into it to make you passionate? Actually, first, are you passionate about it? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. good. Um, that's, that's coming across. <laughs> that's good. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like what I've what I've written so far. Um, by academic standards, I'm not sure it's actually terribly a long list, but um, we're I'm getting there. Um, so one thing that's really attracted me is the fact that um, if you look at a lot of the kind of academic security conferences, um, a lot of the work focuses on this is how we break something, or you know this is how we we fix the break that came last year. So if you look at you know what came out at DEF CON a few weeks ago. Um, the, the big thing was like, how do we break the cars, and um, you know, how can we edit uh, birth and, and death records in such a way that um, uh, we can make people appear and make people die, even though they haven't actually done that. Um, but what there's not a lot of is um, uh, we have these methods to break things, we have these methods to fix things, but what's the best way to go about protecting citizens and consumers? If you know Congress tomorrow decided to allocate you know several billion dollars to uh, help citizens from cyber threats, I think an interesting question that I don't know if there's a good answer to is, how what's the best way? Where should we put that money to help protect citizens? Um, should we do some more botnet takedowns? Uh, should we educate more people on keeping their systems up to date and going after the latest patches? Um, should we give money to the Department of Justice to go after cyber criminals? Um, or you know maybe maybe we should be regulating software more strongly um, so people can you know, we write more secure software. I don't know if any of those are, are the right suggestions, um, but I'm not sure anybody has a very good answer. Um, and I think that's one of the things that that struck me is that we have this huge problem. It costs billions and billions of dollars a year, um, and we don't necessarily have good answers on on what are the good kind of high level interventions that we can do to actually save money and help protect people. Yeah. 
I, I do have an answer to that question, actually. Oh, okay. I'm, inter I'm interested. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of different answers, so... You know, and it's just, I mean, my best guess to say, let's say we all of a sudden the government put, you know, millions of billions of dollars into cybersecurity, and, and where where should that be spent? And I, I honestly think that it should be spent on research, not necessarily uh, directly going to defense at this point. Because, I mean, to, to what you're saying, like, you're not even sure where that should go. Like, if we want to secure our infrastructure, where do we put the money? You know, most people actually, you, you'd get a different answer from probably everybody that you ask, right? But the one common thread then is that, hey, maybe we should take a step back and actually try to figure out what the heck is going on. You oh, absolutely. Think, right? so, so, so you don't think that training like 3,000 Metasploit infantrymen is, is a good idea, Jay? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it might be a little touchy of a topic. I, I would probably invest it slightly different in, and say, nothing like that. And not to say not to say that kind of research is really important. And also, and you know, training security professionals is super important. You got to have knowledgeable people on the ground. Um, but I, I do think you're absolutely right is part of the problem with that question is we don't have a good answer to it. Right. Um, so we do need a lot more research into um, what's effective, what things that we've, that have been tried in the past, have they actually been effective? Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's even a question I'm not sure everybody knows the answer to. Are we safer today uh, than we were yesterday because, you know, um, uh, OPM finally got their stuff together and, and secured all their servers? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I really don't. What's the, what's the best thing to do? And I think that we need research into figuring that out. Yeah. Yep. So that would be my answer, to put that money into research and try to figure out, try to figure out what this system is about. And actually, you know, that brings me into a quote that I read from a paper that you co-authored with uh, Stephanie Forrest and Stephen Hoffmeyer. Yes. Uh, and it's called The Complex Science of Cyber Defense. And I'm going to, I want to quote what's written in this because I think it's, it's quite beautiful. And it's a, it starts out here. Traditionally, cybersecurity research has focused on technical solutions to specific threats. For example, how to filter spam or protect PCs and mobile devices against the latest malware. This approach has greatly enhanced our ability to defend information systems against attack. Widespread use of antivirus, intrusion, intrusion detection technologies, improved cryptography, and methods for blacklisting infected websites are just a few examples of how technical advances have improved cyber defense. Dot, dot, dot. Such technical improvements will not be sufficient, however. And I think that that last statement, um, could you expand on that a little bit. I, I mean, obviously, there is a lot of good things going on, right? Uh, but without, and there, to be honest, there's not a lot of research behind it. It's kind of people looking and saying, hey, this seems like this is kind of bad. We've got some bleeding. How do we stop that bleeding, right? So how could you expand on that and sort of talk about the intersection of complexity, complexity theory, and cybersecurity? Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I've been trying to focus on, especially kind of later in the in in my research, is looking at um, if we look at complex systems, just about every one that exists, uh, we have malicious actors trying to kind of take advantage by taking advantage of people by either bending or breaking the rules. So I mean, cr crime has been a problem as long as we've had human society. Uh, we got viruses and bacteria and parasites that try to take advantage of of us and other animals. And to that end, we've even got our own security system in the immune system that acts as intrusion detection and, and kind of a patching system. 
Um, so the question is, if, if we're always going to have malicious behavior, and if um, you know, cyberspace as a whole is just one more complex system, um, we're going to have malicious behavior. It's just going to be inherent in, in cyberspace as for the near, for the near future. Um, so one of the things that we want to be able to look at is in biological systems, there have been very specific ways that um, the immune system has learned to take care of malicious agents coming after it. Um, and maybe we can draw some inspiration there and think about, so what are more general approaches to security? So rather than, um, you know, this cryptographic algorithm is broken and here's how it's broken um, and, you know, here's how you fix it by lengthening the key by another 128 bits, uh, maybe we need to think about what's the kind of meta-level uh, interventions we need to think about to be able to, to protect systems. I don't know that there's a, a good answer for that right now, and that's certainly something that we're actively researching. Um, we've actually, we're, there's a, a conference coming up on the, it's the European Conference on Complex Systems, which is paradoxically, paradoxically in Phoenix, Arizona this year. Um, so, uh, but we have a paper on just kind of looking at general trends in complex systems and general trends in malicious behavior in complex systems um, and how we might go back and intervene. So things like um, counterattacks, like botnet takedowns and security, I mean, these happen a lot in, um, in like crime syndicates where we're going after criminals and arresting them. Um, you know, there's filtering, which takes place in, in cyberspace where we're filtering bad traffic or we're trying to isolate bad IPs. Um, the same thing happens in your body uh, when we're filtering out, like uh, the mucous membranes in your nose filter out particles before they come in. Um, and so we're just trying to see if there's general principles here that we can apply um, between com complexity and security. So uh, as my advisor has quoted and likes to say, biology is the science of security. So biology has figured out a lot of these kind of how to handle uh, chronic security problems. And we think a lot of inspiration might be taken there. So rather than just like, let's break this and let's fix it, let's kind of think of general principles that can just make us safer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the term there is what, biomimicry? Yes. Right. Okay. So, I mean, like, but just taking that a little bit step further, a little naively too, um, to just kind of maybe bring it down a little bit, or or, or maybe or maybe this won't bring it down a little bit. So the, there's, so while the biological systems and and actually, you know, let's let's put some 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 props to the to the bioscience people too, because we've actually developed new drugs that actually help the systems do what they're going to do too. There's all sorts of things where, like, you have these viruses, um, these these nasty things that are actually, you know, being able to circumvent the human-created assisted defenses, you know, that we put out there. So, like, we have we have drug-resistant everything that's kind of coming out there now and there. So, so I, I guess while while there may be a lot of hope looking and trying to mimic some of that kind of stuff, what what about the is is the the fact that we've that we're seeing that that kind of drug resistant thing happen there and the this the immune system deficiencies and I mean I, without getting into a lot of detail that we're 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 seeing the 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 bio stuff we're seeing the things that are trying to harm humans in the bio in the biospace being resistant by figuring out ways around things too is is that just is that maybe not necessarily the way to go because we're because we're seeing that when we do try to help and we do try to influence we do try to circumvent that these things are just smarter and coming way are coming way are, are coming around it as well too like I, that's just, just kind of throwing that out there. No, absolutely, um, and it's it's always an arms race. Um, so and this is especially true in in security because we're not only dealing with kind of um, dumb bacteria that 
uh, deal on a uh, evolutionary time scale, which is still pretty fast when you're looking at the bacterial level, but you're looking at a, an adversary who's actually intelligent and knows how to react and can react you know, much quicker than virus can multiply. It's certainly something that you, we have to think about, um, but this is the case, I mean, across any complex system, is as the, as the security adapts, the adversary is also going to attack, uh, to adapt. Um, and so, yes, this is a problem, um, and it's, yes, something that we can address. Um, frankly, I think it's something that security has addressed poorly. Um, so, in general, we've got uh, what we like to call monoculture. So most software out there is the same. So if there's a vulnerability in a single piece of software, there's you know tens of thousands or millions of th millions of copies out there that are also vulnerable, and it's hard to adapt them. Um, so in biology, uh, we have individuals who are adapting um, as well, and I think that's kind of lacking. Um, there's a lack of, of, of adaptiveness of software, um, and that's part of the reason that we have flaws like Heartbleed um, and, and Shellshock that affect you know millions and millions of systems is because they're all the same and they can't adapt necessarily. We haven't yet really talked about the really cool paper. I mean, we have a to, to a small degree introduced it, but I think we need to talk about that a little bit. So should we start with the hype and heavy tales, Bob? Was that yeah, the one you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that one is the at least most in, most okay. accessible, initially accessible one. And so the full name is Hype and Heavy Tales, A Closer Look at Data Breaches, and it won the best paper at Weiss this year. That's correct. Weiss is the uh, what, what world... Workshop, workshop, workshop on the economics of information security. security. Yes, there you go. Yeah, and this one best paper there, which is a, a pretty pretty big thing. It's kind of yeah. a kind of a big deal. So congratulations on that, Ben. This is, and I've read virtually every Weiss paper that there ever has been. I actually do like reviews of it and like and like um like synopses of it for other people. This may be the best paper I've ever seen come out of Weiss. Well, fantastic. Thanks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> High praise. And so we uh, we stumbled across it purely by accident. And in there, you uh, you cited some of my work that I've done. And what I liked about it is that you looked at my work and said, I have no idea if I trust that or not. So I'm just going to mention it that it's out there. <laughs> well, thanks thanks for the trust. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally understandable. Um, yeah. So could you just describe the research and how it's set up and 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 the the findings and give a brief overview? Sure. Um, so what we wanted to do, we were, we, I became interested in data breaches uh, in the winter of 2014, shortly after the Target data breach. Um, and later that year, of course, there was the, the Home Depot data breach, which is about 45 million people, about the same magnitude. And I started to think, you know, maybe that we can do the kinds of predictions that geologists do when they say, you know, the chance of a 4 or a 7.0 magnitude earthquake in the San Fernando Valley in the next 10 years is X percentage. Um, and so we, what I wanted to do is what's the, what's the probability of a target style size data breach in the next, you know, six months. Um, so what we did is we wanted to, uh, first thing to do is to make those kind of predictions. We wanted to look at trends in data breaches. So we analyzed roughly 10 years of data from the public data from the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. They're a California nonprofit that collects uh, data breach reports from across the United States. Um, and using that data, we looked at trends in both the frequency, like how often breaches were reported, and the size of breaches, that is, how many records were contained, were contained in each breach. Um, so what we decided to do is we fit a number of Bayesian trend models. Um, and what we found was somewhat surprising is that 
the models seem to report that there was no increase in the size, that is the number of records contained in a breach, or the frequency of breaches in the last 10 years. And in fact, the frequency of breaches that were the result of hacks or insiders actually seemed to dis decrease slightly over the last 10 years. So, so I have to stop you one second. Um, mm -hmm. you, you do need to define Bayesian trend model for like the vast majority of people that listen. Okay. Um, well, I'd refer you to the paper. No. Um, <laughs> so a Bayesian trend model, essentially what we wanted to do is um, what, what uh, the, especially the size of data breaches, it spans several orders of magnitude. So if you just try to fit a linear regression line to that data, uh, what happens is the, the variation over those large orders of magnitude gives you biased estimates. Um, so we, we wanted to fit just a, uh, a trend line over that data, and we wanted to determine if it was increasing or decreasing, so we, we fit linear trends. But we also, you know, we considered the possibility that it had reached a peak at some point, so we also fit quadratic trends, you know, that is uh, degree two polynomials over the data. Um, and what we did is we did it with a Bayesian, meaning uh, the probability of a, of a certain outcome we specified specifically as, a, as different types of distributions. In this case, the size of the distributions were log normally distributed. Um, and what, what that means is that uh, the data spans several orders of magnitude, uh, meaning most breaches are in the hundreds or, or dozens of records. Um, and, but we do get a few that are in the tens of millions and occasionally hundreds of millions. So what we can do is using this kind of Bayesian modeling where we're doing updating based on the data, um, we can account for all this, all the, the large variation in the data in a principled way. Um, hopefully that answers the question in, in kind of a concise way. Bayesian modeling is a huge field, obviously, and um, you know I'm trying to trying to give the the five minute intro to it. No, that's appreciated. Yeah, just like we we always like to help define some of these terms because a lot of times people are just being introduced to them, and actually a, a couple of times like it's actually spawned people to to actually do interesting work and in, with with the stuff. So the more you can help define some of these things, the better it'll be, folks. Fantastic. Um, so and and then the other thing we noticed. Um, just, just uh, is that the frequency of, of breaches was what's called negative binomially interested or distributed? I'm sorry. Um, so what this means is if if breaches were just random, if we expected them to be independent and and just occurring at random, we would expect what's called a Poisson distribution. Um, that is, on a daily basis, we'd see just a specific number of uh, discrete breaches a day. But we found is they're actually kind of bunched up around certain days of the week, and this gives us a, a negative binomial distribution. Um, and we actually didn't say this in the paper, but we think actually the bunching is a result of um, this is when companies are announcing breaches, which is on Friday. Uh, hopefully, when people aren't going to notice, um, or or, or the, the news is going to be less impactful. So yeah, we actually see a significant increase in breaches reported on Friday as opposed to the rest of the week and on the weekend. Interesting. Much, much, much like announcing bad bad second quarter and third quarter and fourth quarter, you know, returns and stuff. Yeah, just the same kind of way to to bury that information. Right. I mean, that's our hypothesis. Uh, I have I've never been involved in reporting a major data breach, uh, so I, I couldn't say that that was the decision making process. But... Having been in an enterprise, I I would let you know that that would be a really good strategy that you've assumed. Let's just put it that way. So. Fair enough. So looking at this research, though, it it actually is surprising, like just the outcome, right? And the, the outcome saying that bre breaches have not increased. And if we were going to ask pretty much anybody, I think, anybody, even not in security, but in security and say, hey, are things worse now than they were a year ago? Or are they getting worse? Whatever. I think month over month, if we ask that question, actually, that's what Dan Gear did with the cybersecurity index, right, Bob? Yep. And so month over month, he asked these series of questions of a set 
number of people and gets back responses, and month over month, it's always getting worse. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much breaches for his thing, though. It's actually, you know, basically, in and I since I used to actually, you know, respond to this, I will, I will definitely put this in theory experts because you know who who knows I'm kind of crazy, but um, who are basically given their expert opinion based upon their position within an enterprise to define vulnerabilities, threats, attackers, et cetera. So it's not just breaches. It's the whole basic, it's like really the entire, you know, spectrum associated with incidents in general or just threats in general. So, but, but, well, but to your point, yes, it's been escalating every single month. That index keeps rising. It, it does not dip. So whatever you look, whatever you talk about in security, though, if you think something is rising, wouldn't you also expect the other things to rise? You know, so if you have a, a rise in botnets, a rise in whatever it is, I mean, they're these are all sort of related, you know. Well, to a degree, I mean, I I I won't I won't let Ben talk a little bit, but my I think part of the problem is that you, it's it's sort of the same thing with terrorist incidents too, right? You you would people even today would probably swear that terrorist incidents are are rising or they're still bad or whatever when in reality it's the media reports xyz and that's kind of fresh in the mind so the you know the media has then like literally every media outlet from marketplace which is one of my favorite shows to all the rags to the various you know cable shows which i don't even know exist but you kind of they but they all blast this stuff on a regular basis so it's in it's top of mind to people so they automatically think it's it's more important you know that would be a great study. Here, here you go, Ben. For your next, uh, your next time slot, do a study of reporting on data breaches if that has increased or not. Um, so that's that's definitely one of our hypotheses. Um, I mean, so what you're saying is essentially this is Steven Pinker's argument about crime, right? So perceptions of crime have gone up in the last 30 years, but in fact, um, more recently, we're at a pretty much all-time low as far as as crime rates. Yep. Um, so uh, we think reporting is possible. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I think that, that fuels a lot of perceptions, um, and I don't want to you know, step on anybody here, but um, some of the industry reports that come out year to year, um, when you have a, a single large data breach in a year, for example, between 2012 and 2013, um, where the, the, it was the Experian data breach. It wasn't really Experian. It was the company they bought that's mm -hmm. name escapes me right now, um, uh, where that, that breach is initially reported as 200 million records. So that's uh, not out of the out of the out of usual for the distribution of that we see of breaches. Occasionally, you get hundreds of millions of records contained in a data breach. But when you look at something like the mean from year to year, the average size or the total number of records, one single large data breach can skew that number quite a bit. And so it seems like those large events uh, fuel people's perception of what's going on. Now, the other thing I'd like to say is that it's also possible that even though their size, which we're just measuring as the number of records, hasn't increased, that the impact actually ha actually is. Um, so it's possible that criminals are getting better at monetizing records, um, and so uh, citizens and indiv individuals are seeing um, more monetary impact from this kind of thing. Um, I don't have any evidence of that necessarily, but that's certainly a possibility. Um, it's also, if you look at something like the office personnel management breach, um, this was not just, you know, social security numbers and addresses. This was background checks, um, really private, really deep information. So there's an argument to be made that, you know, it's only 21 and a half million federal employees, which is, you know, top 20 as far as data breaches in the U.S. in the last 10 years. Um, but it, it, what it really is is hugely personal information. So we can, it can be seen as one of the worst out there. So the question is, um, you know, they may not be getting bigger in the number of records, but monetarily and the amount of personal information contained in them might actually be getting worse. 
So in going through this, did this research change your thinking? Like, did you go in there with a certain set mind and then go through this research and have something different on coming out of it? I mean, I had the same perception as I think a lot of people do when we went into it is that, okay, things are getting worse, so let's measure how much they're getting worse so we can, you know, start to make the predictions in the future. Um, and when I started, you know, fitting the models and doing the statistics and finding out, yes, the best model was, in fact, that, that there is no change, um, that was that was certainly surprising. Um, and I think it, it kind of led us to this point where uh, I think these heavy tail distributions show up a lot in security data. We have huge orders of magnitude changes from day to day um, in things like spam and things like uh, malicious traffic. And it's hard to differentiate those kind of what are really regular changes. These are things that happen on an everyday basis from significant changes um, that, that are occurring in the long term or, or are the result of some sort of intervention or new attack. So it's it's really hard to differentiate those things and that's one of the things that throughout the, my research I've, I've really found is that we need to have a good understanding of what's normal and what's not um, and that's that's hard to tell in security data. Yeah, very hard. Yeah. Now, in the, in the paper, you make a, a statement saying, in the next year, there's only a 31% chance, you know I was going to quote this, right? Oh, yeah. There's only a 31% chance of a breach of 10 million records or more in the U.S. Right. How, how, how's that going? This was published in, what, March? Was it March? Uh, we submitted the paper in March. It was published in um, May, or late June. Late okay. June. Uh, or, I'm sorry, early June. Uh, sometime okay. in June. Um, so yes, we definitely stuck our necks out on that one. Um, Which is great, by the way. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. We we had a model. It was able to make predictions. So we said, let's 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 go whole hog. Uh, we held off. We were initially thinking we'd make ten-year predictions, but we thought that might be a little too high of uh, of time horizon to to do correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so we we finalized that paper just as the the early indications of the Office of Personal Management breach were kind of being released. Um, and uh, so I think we probably underestimated, uh, given that there's been, you know, two breaches over 10 million records in the last uh, few months, the OPM breach and the Ashley Madison breach just, you know, last month. Right. Um, and we think there's a number of reasons we might have underestimated. Um, so we may, may have made some modeling mistakes, which were kind of looking at um, different types of models that might be more correct. Uh, not to say our original was wrong, just, you know, we need, we need better ones. Uh, it's possible that something has actually changed re very recently that our model didn't capture. So we were trying to identify continuous trends throughout the data, and it might be that there's been some discrete change that has happened in the last year or six months that yeah. we didn't have enough data to capture at the time. That's the one thing I wanted to throw into this. So. And this kind of ties back in with the bio thing too. So the, on, on the biological sphere, it's an evolutionary adversary that we're dealing with there. It's it's reacting to its, its stimuli and how the evolution of things work. This is an intelligent adversary that we're working with, with specific motives and goals and et cetera. So you know, is one of the deficiencies in your model looking at it straight from a counting perspective and not taking like an adversarial risk analysis perspective on, on those things? That's possible. Um, I'm actually to the, I, I more fall on the side that uh, these phenomenon are, are spread out among lots of adversaries. And so they're not actually poorly modeled by these kind of random event models like we have. Yes, I understand that adversaries are getting smarter, but I think there's probably enough data out there and enough, uh, uh, enough places to be breached that modeling this kind of as just a statistical distribution is not the worst way to go about things. Um, now, certainly the more information we can 
incorporate into these models, the more accurate they're going to be. So if we can start to understand some of the motivations uh, behind some of the breaches, I think we'll have a better idea of, of what motivates different kinds. So for example, the more recent reports about the Anthem breach and the Office of Personnel Management breach by, by places like the New York Times seem to indicate that these are coming out of, these are breaches that were perpetrated by people Within, the, within China and potentially associated with the Chinese government. We don't know that for sure, and the White House has chosen not to make this accusation, even though uh, some reputable news outlets have kind of said that this is the case. So it's likely that these breaches were done for different reasons. They were done for espionage reasons as opposed to something like, I'm going to sell this information on Russian websites to commit identity theft. So it's possible that these last two very large breaches um, were just they were diff differently motivated, and since they're generated by a different process, we need you know a different model to think about them. So so did do we give you a chance to like you know maybe give us a different percentage in the next six months instead of what you did before? You want to stick your neck out again? Oh, absolutely. And actually, we're we're um, we're scraping more data, and we want to do an updated version of the paper, um, and and to try to think about. Um, you know where where we can improve the model, and of course we'll make another prediction because why not? Um, wait, wait a minute. Academics are not just going to abandon a paper because you finally got something published and you're moving on to something bigger. You're actually going to keep looking at this because it's important. No, no way. Well, no. As an academic, as soon as people are interested in it, and I know it's going to get more citations later, I better you know publish another one <laughs> as long as I, people are I, still interested. I have to tell enough. you, I, I need to meet Stephanie Forrest because she's like one of the best advisors I have ever heard of because she has instilled this amazing discipline in you guys, especially you, that like, wow, I need to meet her someday. This is pretty amazing. She's going to love listening to this. <laughs> but, I mean, in all honesty, the 31% chance may be accurate. It, oh, absolutely, yeah. That, right? Actually, I, I was going to address that too, Jay. Like, yeah. just because, like, it was only 31% does not mean that, like, it wasn't right. Like, there was a 31% chance. Oh, by the way, it happened. Right. It was non-zero. You're absolutely yeah, right. It was exactly. non-zero. So maybe yeah, right. maybe this is just a rare event. Um, yeah, it's it's totally possible that this is just a rare event that happened to happen. But I think I think uh, uh, most people when they say when I say oh there's a 31% chance of something happening in the next six months and then it happens twice, um, they're more likely to say hmm maybe there's something wrong rather than or maybe it was just random chance. The right. um the one I mean I, I know Jay's got a couple more probably more technical questions but I, I and I, I tend to be on the more practical side of things um not not that Jay's not practical but he likes to ask some of the other ones but I, it, so one thing I run into a lot across um before, even before I was doing work on the DBIR and, and actually having discussions with lots of enterprises versus just singular ones before I mean and this is this will come as hopefully no shock to most of the listeners if not the ones that are maybe new listeners. You know, enterprises don't report incidents and don't necessarily report breaches unless they really, really, really have to. And like, that's really, 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 really have to, like with the letter of the law thing sort of thing. And I'm wondering, you know, so your model, and I, I'm, I'm doing this on purpose, so your model would only actually get better with more data, right? So if more people actually gave data and reported incidents and breaches, it would really help refine this model and make it more accurate and actually benefit them to actually do more reporting of this kind. Yes. Um, absolutely. So the more data that's out there, and I think, um, so I will say that 48 states have data breach reporting laws. And of course, they're very non-uniform, um, and there's different levels of when you have to report and what you have to report when a breach occurs. Um, so we think that actually the data that we have now captures at least a pretty decent shadow of reality. But yes, like you said, the more information that's out there, um, the more companies are willing to, to share information about uh, when security incidents happen, the better we can start to protect ourselves. 
Um, and I think that's that's a big thing. So the the White House was considering for a while a data a federal data breach reporting law. Uh, I'm not sure what the status of that at this point is. Um, so um, right now, just just to just keep everybody up to date, right now that breach reporting law has been adopted by the DoD and forced on every single contractor that the DoD has. That was the first instantiation of it, and they're working on broadening that. But it's it's actually going to have a significant impact on every size of DoD contractor. So it it is beginning to have an impact. All right. So Ben, let's swap over and talk about uh, a paper that's coming up that you've been working on. It's called Analyzing and Modeling Longitudinal Security Data, colon, Promise and Pitfalls. So what is what is this paper about? I did have a chance to read it. I'm not pawning off on you because I didn't read it, but what can you can you talk about what this paper is about because there's some pretty interesting things in here, I think. Absolutely. Uh, so this is a paper that's uh, coming up. It's going to appear at the annual Computer Security Applications Conference. Um, and so what this did is, in conjunction with some researchers in the Netherlands, uh, we looked at 10 years of spam data. So they had collected um, they had collected this data over the course of a decade, um, and were really they were great enough to share it with us. Their um, uh, Michelle Van Eaten at TU Delft, because um, I mean the collecting data is such a big part of of doing this kind of yeah. research. Um, and, I, and that's really can be the hard part. Uh, so the fact that they collected the data and, and were willing to share it with us was fantastic. So just a little you know plug for them because that, that was a big part of this work. So what we wanted to look at in the data um, is we were able to look at uh, how spam um, um, how the spam origins, IP addresses that were sending spam, uh, were distributed across the globe and how they were distributed among different ISPs. And specifically, we were interested in this because we were also to get, able to get data on how many customers those ISPs had over the course of 10 years. So rather than just being able to look at raw accounts, we're able to look at kind of what's the concentration of IPs that are infected with spam emitting malware in a, in a specific ISP over the course of 10 years on about a weekly basis. And so we, we found some really interesting things. Um, just as far as the malicious data goes, like I said previously, a lot of the data changed orders of magnitude from week to week. Uh, we had one ISP that went from, that had an 800% increase from one week to the next in the number of spam sending IPs. And so, you know, some, something was running through those networks. And so it's, it's really hard to discern um, when changes are taking place and when things like uh, interventions like botnet takedowns whether those interventions are actually making a difference or whether this is just noise that we're seeing regularly in data. So what we attempted to do with the data is we wanted to look at, uh, for one thing, botnet take sounds and see if they had been effective in the last 10 years. Um, we looked at, I think, uh, uh, 10 or 11 of them. Um, and then there were also some other interventions specifically targeted at spam in the last year that in the last 10 years that I think have made a, a big difference. One of them is this real-time filtering. So companies like Google are able to maintain highly accurate real-time uh, updated blacklists of, of IP addresses. And this has reduced the, the, the ability of spammers to make money if all the spam is going to your spam, your, your spam folder. Um, and the other one is work that uh, Chris Kanich did uh, looking at payment processors. So in, I think, around 2011, he published a paper that essentially said, look, spammers are only using about 11 banks. And if Visa and MasterCard decide to not process payments from those banks, uh, spammers will have no way to get money. And a few months later, uh, both Visa and MasterCard put in new requirements for merchants to how, how they could process payments. And around that same time, we actually saw a huge decline in, in the amount of spam that was being sent in our data. 
So we were able to kind of break up and identify different eras of spam over the course of 10 years that are that seem to correspond to these development of new tools. And then we were also able to, um, accounting for those kind of changes based on era, we were able to measure the effect of botnet takedowns. And we have found that what is kind of anecdotally true, or at least that others have told me, is that most botnet takedowns are not terribly effective. We get a short-term drop for a few weeks, and then after about six weeks, we either see it's either leveled off or it's actually increased, maybe even um, past that. Potentially more interesting, actually, is that even some of the takedowns that were effective uh, globally, we actually see an increase in certain areas of the world. So where we might see a decrease in something like Eastern Europe, uh, a month and a half later, we'd see an actual increase in uh, Southeast Asia. So what we think this might mean is that um, you know, botnets are develop or botnet uh, herders are developing their botnets in certain regions. Then once a botnet takedown happens, they look for new computers to infect, and then those may be in, in different regions of the world. So we kind of see this migration. Uh, we don't have any real good evidence for that particular phenomenon, other than the fact that we seem to see this like increase after a takedown. Uh, wonder, in specific reasons. I wonder if it's because, like, you know, when I'm when I'm working on something, say, like writing writing a piece of code or something, and then something happens where I essentially have to rewrite it. When I rewrite it the second time, it's usually far better than the first time. Do you think it's something like that where these guys are, you know, whoever it is, you know, they they're running their botnets and it gets taken can, down, and they're like, hey, can we, we define just... usual first though, Jay? I mean, I've seen like that code. Like, can we define? I'm just, I'm just... yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was open to that. I was open to that, Bob. Well, well played. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, 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 could it be that type of thing where they they get another shot here to do it slightly better? And so, I mean, to what you're saying though is that if we're seeing increases long term and that we see things, you know, a take takedown may be worse for other places. Is that essentially what we're saying? Like, a takedown is simply, uh, for for Bob's reference, cutting off Hydra's head. Right? More will just spawn up. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, that was a, there was a paper at NDSS a couple of years ago um, that was almost essentially that, cutting off the Hydra's head. Um, and, they, and they found that to, to do takedowns, you have to do, um, you have, you have to do the takedown completely. So the, the reason for naming it that was different for that paper. But um, to your point, yes, I think that's absolutely the case. And part of it is there's, there's always a market for bots. So we yeah. think spam sending has certainly gone down in the last 10 years. They're not using bots to send spam anymore because spam isn't that profitable. Uh, but they're using bots to do things like DDoS. And, you know, if I can infect your computer with a bot, I can probably get your personal information to sell online. Well, um, I mean, but, but, but to extend that, is, is it, is it, it's, I mean, yes, I told that's like, that's like, I, you could, I mean, the, 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 the listeners can't see me like all oh, getting excited because I'm, I'm trying to actually not cause the mic. They the mic can hear you getting excited, on, though. On. I'm trying to cause not to make, but so there's a whole economic model behind the botnet stuff, right? So is it also a migration? Not so, you know, it's like it's almost like global warming, right? Is 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 it a migration because there's cheaper botnets over here, so we're going to go there next, and me, oh, we're going to go to the next cheapest one over here? Like, is there an economic cause to the way that the botnet the, the botnets migrate, as well as the availability, as well as everything else you were talking about? Oh, absolutely. And um, so this is not part of this research in particular, but I know that botnets in, or so bots in the United States in particular are 
incredibly valuable. So far more valuable than a, than a bot in India. Um, and this is simply because uh, big, you know, tier one routing providers are willing to blacklist large blocks of IPs in India because there is uh, a lot of malware distributed in, you know, those, that part, those parts of the world. Whereas uh, they'd probably be pretty unwilling to, um, to block, to blacklist large uh, blocks of IPs in Comcast, right? Um, yeah. It's just too big of a customer. Um, and so I, I do know, I do know I'm there on, isn't. I'm on Comcast. They really should. Just, just saying. Anyway. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. Um, but, but again, so I do know there is this big economic point where uh, bots in, you know, the United States in Western Europe are worth a lot more than, you know, bots in Africa, bots in South America, bots in Southeast Asia. And so one of the things that we, this, this, our model may be capturing is simply that is um, bots that are used to send spam don't need to be necessarily the valuable bots in the United States, right? You can send spam from anywhere. If it gets blocked, most of it's going to get blocked anywhere. Who, anyway, who cares? Um, so we might as well, you know, send a lot of it. Um, and so we can send it from the cheap bots. So that may be the, some of the migration that we're actually seeing. So again, with this paper, did you go in with any sort of preconceived notions on what you're going to expect and, and come out with anything different, or is there confirmation going on here? That's a good question. Uh, in truth, this paper uh, went through a long process. We worked on this data for a long time, so it's hard for me to remember what my state of mind when I actually started working on it was. So, and the other thing is, when I'm given a giant pile of data, um, I'm just happier than a pig in a poke. And so, all I wanted to do was make models and you know run statistics and make pretty graphs. It's hard to say what my preconceived notions were. I think our initial our initial research questions going into this was just asking if we have this model uh, or if we have data that can can help us identify which interventions are effective let's let's just try to measure and and really see what's what in the last 10 years has been effective. I'm not I wasn't surprised that the botnet takedowns have not been that effective and in fact every you know real security professional I've talked to um, they like to do them. Um, they're good in the short term, and they're good for people who were a part of that botnet, right? Mm -hmm. um, if your computer is no longer sending spam, that's great. But it's not really doing anything to uh, mitigate the global problem. There may be also, we did find a couple of botnet takedowns that were effective. Um, and in fact, those two escape me now. But so the point is, maybe we want to dig into those botnets and see or those takedowns and see which ones, what made them effective. Um, so it's possible that there's something that differentiates those botnet takedowns from others, um, and then we can learn from those lessons and, and um, use those in the future. That's going to drive me nuts. I'm going to have to look up what that is. And wasn't was it Rustock? Um, yes, Rustock definitely. Oh no, it was the the Breda Lab. Breda Lab and Rustock were the two effective ones, and then okay. the Walladak was mildly effective. So one of the things we did note, um, although we're not sure this is totally significant, is that the the Brettle lab and the the Rustock takedown involved um, arrests. They actually arrested somebody, um, mm -hmm. and arrested somebody nearby the time of the takedown. Um, I don't know if that's significant. It seems a little far fetched that um, you know putting one person in jail can affect the global distribution of bot of bots, but I don't know. Yeah. So I, we're we're willing to bet that that's more coincidental than anything else. Especially because we only have 12 data points, so. Yeah. I think one of the also cool things about this new move to have very solid and also very interesting and very useful cybersecurity ones is we actually get to use the term wickedness in papers. <laughs> I will say that was a term that was a term uh, coined by Tyler Moore, who's at uh, Tulsa University right oh, now, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. way back in 2011. Um, 
So that, yes. well, that, that was a very appropriate riff. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to circle back to some earlier conversations, some earlier questions that I was thinking of. Uh, and essentially, now you're in academia, and obviously Bob and I are not. We're very much on the fringe, although we like to peek in and, and you know check out the surroundings at once. We're, 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 we're posers, according to Lane, so it's okay. Right. Yeah. So, but inside of academia, does researching cybersecurity, how is that viewed? Is that like, you know, oh, that guy over in the corner is researching cybersecurity, just let, leave him alone, or is it something different? You know, is there a different picture for people well, researching cybersecurity? Well, before Ben answers, I'm going to answer that. And like right now, with like the whole, the huge US federal government focus on cyber, I'm guessing it equals, whoa, we better do that cash cow for grants. Like, because I'm just throwing that out there before Ben answers. But my guess is everyone's rushing to it because they just see dollar signs for grant money. So I would say that, um, so in general, computer science is a really congenial field. Everybody I've met who's a computer scientist has actually been like really nice, regardless of subfield. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's there's a lot of stigma or 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 something that goes to it. Um, that being said, computer science is a really big tent. Um, there's a ton of work being done in computer science. Um, so I think that sometimes um, different subfields get a little insular and that they don't necessarily uh, communicate as much as they should. Security actually may be a subfield that's um, kind of kicks that trend, though. Um, you know, for, you know, cryptography and theory are really closely related. Um, if you're doing OS design and implementation, you have to have a knowledge of security. You want to build that in from the start. So I think, in general, even though uh, different areas of computer science can be kind of isolated, uh, security spans a lot. Um, and I think there's there's a growing acknowledgement that um, whether I'm doing software engineering or whether I'm doing theory or whether I'm you know whatever database design, I have to start thinking about security questions from the outset. Um, so I, I mean in that sense, um, I will say yes, you're right. There is a lot of money in cybersecurity right now. Um, anecdotally, um, because I'm going to be on the job market soon and I'm looking at job postings, there's a lot of departments around the world that are looking for people who specialize in security and privacy. So I think that in general, it's a it's a growing field. I'm trying to make it grow, you know, in the direction I want it to, and away from break and fix and more towards bigger understandings. Um, so, so hopefully that'll, that will grow into that direction. And I, I also think there's a lot of respect for people in industry and academia. I think that membrane is pretty thin. Um, I've, met, I've met and interacted with a lot of people at uh, workshops and conferences who work in industry. Kurt Thomas at Google comes to mind as someone who's done a great amount of academic work while, while being at Google. And so, you know, and frankly, on a personal level, I'm a little jealous of the industry guys who have, you know, great data to work with. And, and that's, you know, when I'm trying to answer uh, academic questions and I don't necessarily have access to the to the right data, that's certainly something I can be a little jealous well, of. Well, so we, we've seen, I mean, and like both of us, and, and I've seen some more recently, like date, this this great data that, that you're talking about, it's, it's, it's okay data. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would really, I would hesitate to put the word great in front of the data, but it's, it's, it's more data than you, you have access to as a, as a straight academic. And and actually, that's one thing that I would encourage the enterprise listeners um, that are out there. To, I, I focus on them more than just kind of the mom and pop shops. But, you know, if you're not partnering with some kind of academic institution, if you're not actually like calling up Ben and Stephanie like right after this podcast and like giving them your data, you really should be uh, only because they can do really good. You've heard they can do really good things with it. They actually are passionate about it. 
Um, they actually care. Like the, both of these papers are like, we we freaking care. This matters. It's not just about us. It's about like making stuff better. And you can help make it better by actually giving them your data. So call Ben, call Stephanie, just start giving them your data if you can. So another another great place to call, by the way. So Ross Anderson and Richard Clayton at the University of Cambridge. Yes. Are oh my gosh. Yes. The oh, yeah. cybersecurity data brokerage, um, fantastic uh, organization where they will. Um, they want to act as kind of a middleman between industry and researchers, so they're able to collect and curate data um, uh, from industry, and so that they can they can feel like they can distribute it safely and anonymous, anonymously to or anonymously, making sure the data can't be necessarily linked back in a and, damaging way to companies. And, and every undergrad that's out there that's listening, that's in a point and shoot metasploit security program class undergrad curriculum thing, cyber whatever whatever it's called and you, you're even moderately curious about what, what we've just talked about, and you read these papers and you can you can feel the whole this matters thing, seriously look into that because those Cambridge guys are, and we've linked to it a couple times on, on the blog, and we'll do it again for this, but they are doing some incredible work. The places that they're going to take this stuff to are just, it's phenomenal. Like, it is exactly where you want to be. Like, you know, don't, like, take your finger off the trigger, put it back on the key, on the real keyboard, and actually start looking at some of this stuff because this is actually where it's going to be. But 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 before we switch to a different topic, I do need to do, I have one detraction from from your actual, um, the, the the paper we just talked about, which which is the analyzing and modeling longitudinal. You guys got to come up with, like, Harry Potter better names for these papers because, like, it would really get a lot of other non-academic, like, like Harry Potter and the promise of pitfalls or something like that. I don't know, but right. um, so just just uh, this is a constant argument with my with my advisor. I like to be cute with uh, titles, and and she thinks we should be should be more direct. It it, it, it would help more be, to be more accessible. But I'm going to challenge you for your next paper to use the Viridis color map and not not use one of the more traditional ones that you were using. Oh, the 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 red to red to blue. Yeah, I mean the red the red to blue that you use is fine, but take a look at Viridis because that's a Python thing, and I know that you're one of those. Um, but like the, the fact is, R has adopted the Viridis color map far, far greater and far more expansive than the Python people who created it have. And I would just encourage you to try to help the Python people along by by using that color map more. So maybe they could catch up to the R people. With that. So I do, I do have some points about color maps. So specifically with this one, uh, we wanted the white to be no effect, so that needed to be the zero, the zero value. And then the positive and the negative. Negative is blue. It's positive. It's good things are happening, and red is negative things are happening. So we actually had. We actually thought this one through. Oh, you did? No, no. And like it was. I, I, I'm not detracting against the use of what you did there because you actually use, like, so you like it looks like you used actually one one of the the, the actual blue blue white red um uh, color brewer palette for that. Yes. And, and it's so that's actually colorblind and print safe too, which is great. So you guys, exactly. you guys made this paper as accessible as you possibly could. I'm just like I I we you know like the, the Python people who actually developed this color map need some help promoting it since we've adopted it in R far faster than you have. So I'm just like I'm just giving you like just to help your Python people along, you know, just kind of use it in your next one if you could. I'll I'll get it out there next time. Cool. So Ben, what do you have coming up for you now? You've got uh, a few months left in your PhD, you said, and and what else do you have going on coming up? Um, we are just research-wise, we're definitely looking at expanding, um, looking at, at things with the with data breaches. We want to come up with some better models. Um, we're certainly looking at um, models that look at different domains. So we think, you know, medical breaches are probably a lot different than retail breaches um, and start to think about uh, how different modeling decisions could be made in each of those domains. Uh, we're also really interested in, in looking at costs. Um, so data breach cost is something that there 
isn't a lot of work on. And I know you said, you know, I used your work without assuming its validity. But frankly, um, I, I believe that that model we included in our paper that you would, you would come up with was probably more accurate than just about anything else that was out there. Um, so we are really interested in, in you know, how do, we, how do we measure the cost of, of data breaches like this? So it's one thing to know the, the probability of something happening. But if we really want to assess risk, we have to know how much it's going to cost in the future, too. Yeah. Um, so cost is a big thing that we, we really want to look at. Uh, you know, and uh, in, a, in a completely different domain, uh, we're also, also interested in kind of this phenomenon uh, of, of cyber attacks um, and exactly why we're kind of seeing more uh, government or we seem to be seeing reports of more government-led cyber attacks um, and what the kind of dynamics between different countries are in there. Um, that, one's, that one's pretty pretty early, so I don't want to talk too much about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're just basically trying to trying to model, like, why countries might uh, choose to cyber attack other countries? Uh, are, are you are you very close to um, are, are you are you very close to getting your PhD? Uh, yeah. So my advisor tells me that in the next few months I should be able to defend. Um, so yeah, the the spam paper that we uh, we got published is kind of acting. That was supposed to be the middle chapter, and now it's going to be the last chapter um, of my dissertation. So yeah, I'm within a few months. So, so can you let us know like when you actually get your PhD so we can announce it on, on the blog? Because like this is huge, right? Like actually having someone get their PhD who's doing this kind of work that's passionate about it. It's meaningful stuff you've published. It's not just all academic blah, 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 blah. It's actually stuff that can help people in real life. Like we need to make sure that like everyone knows you've got your PhD, dude, seriously. Fantastic. That would be wonderful. I think we would probably wrap this up. Uh, Bob, did you have anything else? No, I, this, this, dude, you are amazing. This is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I, I thank for the, thanks for the vote of confidence. Um, it, it feels good to know that maybe all this toiling away in grad school has not been for, for nothing. Well, wait, now like this is for me. I'm the insane one, so I don't like, you know, like I mean, this is, this is, I mean, my, my, my opinion is like this matters this tiny right? Well, you know, one person is better than zero, so. <laughs> Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and uh, we definitely will be keeping in touch and, and watching where you're going in the future. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me.